Amen. Well, the title of today's sermon is entitled Lessons from the Wilderness because the author of Hebrews is taking us back to another historical example of apostasy so that we would learn by their example. And uh, he's already done this. Uh, going back to verse 7 is where he introduced um, Psalm 95, and he began to talk about the wilderness generation and how they hardened their hearts and what that has to do with us now. And that is really uh, the pattern that Scripture follows all throughout the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, many examples are given to us of uh, the wilderness generation, the Exodus generation, those who failed to enter the promised land. And uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that we ought to look towards those things as an example for us to follow or not to follow, as an example of what happened to them so that we might learn. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he repeats the issue. And what I found to be compelling there in 1 Corinthians 10 was that he first tells us in verse 6 that the things that happened to Israel as he's pulling from the same narrative that Hebrews is, is that it happened as examples for us. And he pointed to the consequences of their sins that, as that which happened to them as an example that they were written for our instruction. And as a matter of fact, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, 18, that we should be able to look at the whole nation of Israel as one great example for lessons to be gleaned on our sanctification. Now, the reason for that, the reason for that is concluded in chapter 10, verse 22, stressing there the character and the nature of God, that God was and is and continues to be a jealous God. And He will not share His glory with another, and He will not share His people with any other. And that is exactly, in essence, what's happening here in the book of Hebrews. Mind you that the church that uh, this is written to is being tempted to fall away from the living God, to fall away from the new covenant And everything that Jesus did through his blood as he inaugurated the new covenant age and to return and go back to the old covenant, to go back to the old covenant ways. And in essence, what they would be doing is they would be going backwards in redemptive history, backwards in redemptive history. But this passage and the wilderness generation holds out for us several things, four things, in fact, that I want to point out to you in terms of what we can learn from the Exodus generation. Number one, we can learn that they had a mixed multitude. Look at verse 16 again. It says, who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? If there's one thing you learn from the Exodus generation was that it was a mixed multitude. And in fact, that is something that has plagued the church uh, since the inception of time, since the very beginning of the people of God. There have been those who identify with God's people that are not truly of God's people. And so we have to decipher and sift through, and we have different ways of doing that. I think of membership, for example. I think of church membership as a great uh, test Uh, of a person's, the genuineness of a person's faith. That's a real practical way that we can do that. But in Israel's history, they always had these uh, false 
brethren among them, those that did not believe. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 13, there Moses warns the people that false teachers would arise among them. And so that begs the question, will it be like that today? Yes, of course it will be. Um, Second Peter, if you look at Second, turn to Second Peter with me, because I think you have all sorts of different examples of this in Scripture. But in Second Peter chapter two, it makes it crystal clear that what was happening in Egypt in that generation is what we can expect to happen today. There is a correspondence, in other words, with the people of God. There will always be this continuity of a mixed multitude among God's people. Look at the way that Peter talks about this. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, here it is, just as there will be, or there will also be, false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Watch this, even denying the master who bought them. And the word there for bought, agarazzo, speaks of the redemption that took place in the Exodus, probably mainly. He says, and they will bring swift destruction upon themselves. Now, we've all heard of those who were at one point claiming faith in Christ only to abandon the faith. Scholars on a scholarly level, seminary level, we hear about uh, from time to time, at least I do because I pay attention to those kinds of things, of seminary teachers who adopt liberalism only to finally go into full all-out heresy. Um, Even uh, pastors have apostatized from the faith. Um, No one is free of the warnings and the threat of Hebrews. Uh, Maybe one painful example in recent times, I mentioned Bart Ehrman uh, in our Sunday school class, uh, the the famous textual critic who was a mentor, really a protege of Bruce Metzger, probably the greatest 20th century textual critic of the Bible. Well, if you know anything about Bart Ehrman, you know that as of late, Bart Ehrman has gone on a literal virtual crusade against the reliability of the Bible. He is now the professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Ehrman has written book after book after book trying to undermine the reliability of the Bible. This is a person that at one time had faith in Jesus Christ, at one time defended the Bible, and now he is on a crusade to undermine the reliability of the Bible. Uh, Bart Ehrman was recently asked in um, an interview on his website various questions about his worldview now. Well, you know that he has adopted agnosticism. He says that in his pastime now he enjoys fine cigars and that he still reads the Bible because he considers it the most important book in the history of our form of civilization without peer. The interviewer went on to ask Bart Ehrman, Uh, what is going to be his final thought on all things eternal? And this is what Bart Ehrman replied. He said, oh boy, I hope I was right. Well, sadly, we know that he is wrong. And instead of the biblical worldview, he has now adopted a self-refuting, illogical, unsustainable worldview in agnosticism which really should lead him to complete and utter skepticism of everything. 
Um, but Bar Ehrman is just one example. In the Bible, we have numerous examples of apostasy, of those who seemingly were among God's people, only to go out from them. Uh, as you're turning to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, I want to remind you of the fact that the Apostle Paul said that one of the laborious things about the ministry is that he often found himself in the danger of false brethren, those that would betray him in the ministry, those that he would labor with time after time, year after year, and place after place, and church after church, only to have them betray him later. For example, Demas in uh, uh, the end of 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul simply says, look, he came to the end of his ministry and he looked around and what was the assessment of the ministry of the apostle Paul? Everyone has abandoned me. He said, Demas loved this world so much that he forsook me and he went back to Thessalonica. He fell in love with the fleeting, passing pleasures of sin. But uh, there in 1 John, we're given really the theology of this, uh, crystallized, really explained to us in detail because what are we to make of those that go out from among us? You know, this was a huge controversy in the early church. Um, in the early church, there was a, a controversy surra- uh, surrounding the, ton- the Donatists, who were those who had abandoned faith in Jesus Christ during persecution, and then at times of peace arose, those same people that had forsaken faith in Christ wanted back into the church, and the church was left to sort of pick up the pieces and say, well, what do we do with all these people that buckled under the weight of persecution and now they want to come back into the church like nothing ever happened? Do we accept them back into the flock? Is, there genuine, is, there, is their faith genuine after all? I mean, after all, not too long ago, these same people in our very presence were denying the lordship of Christ to save their life. Well, 1 John chapter 2 tells us that when such things happen, not temporarily, like Peter who temporarily denied the Lord but later returned to the Lord because of Jesus' intercession, but those who actually go out from us. You know this verse, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. I've preached about this so many times. I can, I, I, you know, I, I can recall talking about this over and over to you, that there is just such a safety in the fellowship of the local church. There is such a safety being in the assembly of God's people, being part, being a member of a local congregation where people know your faith and they know your doctrine and they know your life. And when you go outside of that, as John says here, you go outside of that because you were not of us to begin with. That is where we have to land. And so all of those that went with the generation of Exodus intermingled with the people that God redeemed on a national level, it appeared as all of them were obeying Yahweh, but many of them through disobedience ultimately failed the test. Who provoked him when they had heard? 
See, they had heard the word of the Lord. They had seen the powerful signs that were done in their presence, and they rejected the counsel of the Lord anyway. Anyway, there are all sorts of similarities between us and Old Testament times. Um, Marcionism is that heresy that arose in the early church as well, saying that, well, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God in the New Testament. The Old Testament is not so much important anymore because really all you need is the grace of the New Testament. And what it did is it created a picture in people's minds of two different gods, that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. And how many people walk around with that mentality today? You talk to them, they'll say, oh, that's Old Testament. Haven't you heard people say that? As if to say, that portion is irrelevant, right? But as Paul said there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 22, our God is a jealous God, and His covenant jealousy doesn't end at the Old Testament. If anything, it intensifies in the New Testament because He's dealing with a regenerate New Covenant people. Jesus came with all sorts of signs and wonders, just like the people saw in Exodus. As a matter of fact, there are all these similarities, theologically speaking, between the old covenant people in the wilderness and the new covenant church. For example, just like the new covenant church, the, the, the generation that came out of Egypt had a covenant leader in Moses. He was their covenant mediator. How many times did Moses go between the people and God? to mediate for them, that God would spare them from His wrath. Likewise, Jesus Christ, our mediator, stands between God and man, mediating for us. And all of these new covenant ways basically show us that everything has intensified in Christ. The stakes are much higher now. Turn to chapter 2, back to chapter 2 of Hebrews, just to see this again. The spirit of what Hebrews is saying is that now we stand to fail to enter a greater rest than the children of Israel coming out of Egypt going into Canaan. Listen to what it says. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention. See that? Much closer. See those, uh, those comparative clauses? It, what it's saying is that something more important is now at stake. He says, for what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, that's referring to the law that in Jewish tradition, angels were sort of mediators of that law. And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And, and, and then listen to the history of our salvation. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord. This is the new covenant ministry. This is the gospel, to make it plain and simple. The gospel first, the message of salvation first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. And so just like the, the Exodus generation, this generation to whom Hebrews was written stood as a generation apart from what happened originally with Jesus, the apostles, and all of the cataclysmic signs and wonders that took place that they knew about. 
if they fail to take heed to that message, oh, how much greater is the condemnation if God didn't let anybody in the old covenant get away with their transgression, their unbelief, their covenant faithlessness. How much more under the new covenant if we abandon the new covenant? How much greater condemnation will be heaped upon us after and in light of everything that God has done through Jesus Christ. See, turn with me to Hebrews 6 because Hebrews chapter 6, really, the fact that we have these promises, the fact that there are promises which remain for us to end to the rest, there's the great things that are at stake here. These are the basis for the exhortations that we get in Hebrews. And Chapter 6, the parallel passage there in chapter 6 really ties it all together. Hebrews 6, 9 says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so, that, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered in all uh, and in His and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that, watch this, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. You see that? You inherit the promises by faith. By faith, the children of Israel entered into the promised land. By faith, Moses told the children of Israel, Caleb, Joshua, and some of the others, the younger generation, they'll enter in because they did not disbelieve my promises, because they did not believe that God was able. In the same way, you and I stand to lose the promise of redemption It is not that you will lose your salvation. If you don't truly, genuinely have salvation, then you will not hold on by faith to the promises. But what is the other lesson that we can learn from the wilderness generation? Not only this idea that among the people of God, there are those that will hold on to the promises and there are those that will relinquish the promises, but there is also the lesson of holiness the lesson of holiness. Look at verse 17 as well. It says, And with whom, with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So here the author again is identifying who it was that failed to enter the promised land. And it was those that sinned. In other words, they lack the holiness that God wanted. The, to, use, to interpret the word holy in a different way, they lacked the otherness. The otherness. In other words, that they were to be distinct, that they were to be different. That's what holiness is all about uh, for the Israelites. That's why God commanded them to do what maybe we perceive to be strange things to cut their hair in a certain way, to wear certain clothing, to eat certain things, because to abstain from certain things, because it was to distinguish them as possessing a very particular identity as God's holy people. And that is exactly what should distinguish us. What should distinguish us above everything else in the Christian life is 
our holiness. It is our devotion to God, our consecration to the Lord. In other words, we ought to look different, we ought to live different, we ought to talk different, we ought to behave different than our neighbor, period. We ought to be different. This culture should look at us and think there's something strange about us. Why don't we just go along with all the entertainment and go along with all of the silliness and the futility and the triviality of our culture, all of the sensuality, everything sinful about our culture? Why, why don't we just go along with all of that? That was one of the things that brought down persecution on the original Christians. Did you know that? The original Christians were often persecuted because... They refused to join in the debauchery of Rome. And the Romans couldn't understand, why don't you want to go to the theater? Why don't you want to go see the, the, the barbarians kill each other in the arena? Why don't you want to see the, the, the beasts devour these savages that they would put in the arena for their jest and for their games? The Christians didn't want to tolerate that. They, they, they didn't want to participate in those things. And so they were ostracized. They were marginalized. And ultimately, they were not just criticized, but they were persecuted unto death because they refused to join in in the patriotism of Rome. In the certain ways, you and I have to get very real about what, to what degree can we be patriotic? What, you know, one of the things that upsets me more than anything is when they do public prayers right? In public arenas. When they play at the convocation, at the inauguration of the presidents, and they're praying ecumenical prayers, and, you know, all of these faiths are coming out to pray, and everyone's bowing their head to pray. No, we only pray to one God. I'm sorry. We don't participate in ecumenical prayers. We don't bow our head when people are addressing false gods, false deities. But we stand in protest. We stand because we're different than our culture. And verse 17 really represents for us sort of a progression, because back in verse 16, it was what they heard, but for 40 years. You see that reference there? For 40 years. What is that telling us? It's not just recounting the duration of time. The 40 years represents the period of time where God revealed His faithfulness to Israel, His name, His covenant name, His covenant faithfulness, His covenant works. And so they heard the message, they saw the works, and they still did not believe. And they still rebelled. God had fashioned every type of proof that they needed, and yet they doubted. They doubted whether or not God was able to provide for them sufficient water, you remember? He they doubted whether or not God was able to provide sufficient manna, you remember? And at all, all the time and at every interval, you see that the nation of Israel is grumbling and complaining, faithless, and God sees that as, as a direct opposition. Turn with me to the book of Numbers. Oh, I tell you what. Read, if, read Hebrews in the, in the section that we're reading here. Read all of chapter 3 and then go back and read Numbers 14 because it is an amazing uh, commentary on everything that Hebrews is talking about here in chapter 3. It's, a, it's a, exactly what the historical events are referring to. So Numbers 14 is a critical passage to parallel all of this. But uh, there we see the people's infidelity to Yahweh. And therefore, God's curses ensue. 
And it also captures the fact that God sees their unbelief as a direct opposition to His wisdom and His promises. Um, Look at verse 33, Numbers 14, 33. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. That's not a good thing, by the way. That's a bad thing. And they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Uh, The reason why it's important to point out that their corpse would lie in the wilderness is because in Levitical law, a a corpse that is exposed and and is laid out uh, in public is accursed. It was considered an accursed, profane thing. And so God is speaking very powerfully here. Verse 34, according to the number of the days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt, uh, you, shall, you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. You see that? I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this is what I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be destroyed. And there, and there they will die. They reaped what they sown. God takes it very personal. He takes sin very personal. You remember what God told David when he sinned with Bathsheba? He said, why did you despise me? And David said, Lord, I did not despise you. Yes, you must. In order to sin, you must despise the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 2, my people have created an abominable thing. Be appalled, O heavens, right? Because they have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. So in order to satisfy yourself in anything other but God, you first must turn away from God, despise God. That's the way that he takes it. So they lack the proper holiness The other thing, too, is that they relinquished redemption. They relinquished redemption. Look at verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now, the idea of rest is absolutely critical here. Because in Hebrews and in the New Testament, the concept of rest, which comes from the Exodus texts, now is typologically fulfilled in salvation. Salvation. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. So you know this is not physical rest. This is spiritual rest. This is salvific rest. This is rest in Christ Not rest in Jerusalem, not rest in Israel, not rest in a geographical location at a temple or a church. It is rest in Christ. It was Augustine who said, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. And that's exactly what it is. Restless man needing rest for his soul. And um, there's so much here. But I ask you this question, my dear friends. Why did God take this so personal? And why does it result in relinquishing, as I said, redemption? Why does it result in the relinquishing of God's promises? When you think of the book of Exodus, 
What do you think about? You think about Moses? Do you think about the plagues? Do you think about parting the Red Sea? What do you think about? Well, approaching it from a redemptive historical approach, we ought to be thinking Abraham. Abraham. Now turn with me to Exodus because I want to show you a little bit about, about Abraham in Exodus and why that is important. Why that is important. Ultimately, ultimately, it should have been a declaration, the Exodus, of the faithfulness of God to his promises. That's what it meant. Exodus chapter 2, God makes it very clear when he calls Moses why God is provoked to act. Why do we see God in his covenant action here? It is because God knows what is going on in Egypt. See, Egypt to God represents above everything else an assault on the promise that he made, a threat to the oath that he made to Abraham. And God now means to act. Look at this, Exodus 2.23. Now came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. The sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered. That doesn't mean God forgot or God had overlooked. When it says God remembered, it means God decided to act, to do something. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. <laughs> so Exodus connects us back to Abraham and to the covenant that he made. What is at stake in the Exodus? Well, God is a, so is a God of social justice. God doesn't tolerate slavery. No, no, no. That is not the primary thing. God doesn't like suffering, and so he wants to end the world and rid his people of suffering. No, no, no. That is not the, primor, the primary motive by which God moves into action. But his primary motive is because his covenant glory is on the line. Because he had made these promises long ago. As he says, God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. The reason why he did this is not primarily because God hates slavery. It's not primarily because, as I said, God is against social injustice. It is not even because God is on some great humanitarian mission. His covenant promises are on the line. That means His glory is on the line. And because His glory is on the line, therefore, He has to reveal Himself to Moses and justify what He is doing and what He is about to do. He is the God of Abraham. And that's how he reveals himself to Moses. Look at, um, look at chapter 3, verse 6, Exodus 3, verse 6. Again, he says, I am the God of your father. This is the way that God reveals himself to Moses. The God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid to look at God. 
We know that one of the most famous instances in Exodus chapter 3 is the interaction that that, uh, Moses has with God here at the burning bush. And when God chooses to reveal himself to Moses, you remember how he revealed himself, right? What was the name that God wanted Moses to call him by? The I am. Why? I submit to you that the reason why is that it has to do as much with the covenant faithfulness of God as it does with God's aseity. That's a word you can write down. Aseity, it means God's self-existence, comes from the Latin, ase, from yourself. It means God has, self, has existence within himself, needing nothing outside of himself. And that's usually the way that we talk about Exodus chapter 3. We point to the self-existence of God. Correct. But it is not just a point for apologetics. It's a theological point. It is a doctrinal point. It is a covenantal point. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you will say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you will say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This, only after recalling his covenant promises to the patriarchs, this is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Who is the I am? Yes, he is the self-existent one, but he is the one who will fulfill all of his promises and not even Egypt will stand in his way. 400 years of slavery, captivity in a foreign power like Egypt in a pagan dominion will not stop God from fulfilling his promises. And as you look at the world today, is that not a comfort? Nothing is going to stop God from fulfilling the great promises that He made to the fathers, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Just make it Sunday school easy, right? Every promise, yes, amen, only in Jesus Christ. That's how He's going to do it. Matter of fact, I want you to consider something with me. You should jot down Isaiah 41, Isaiah 42, because hundreds of years later, he repeats the pattern. Hundreds of years later, again, the people of God are under threat of captivity. This time, it's not Egypt anymore. It's Assyria, and it is Babylon. And again, why does God move to redeem his people from Assyria and from Babylon? This is why, because he says in Isaiah 41.8, he had made promises to Abraham. Abraham is the reason why. Abraham, we can say, as one theologian said, Abraham is like a juggernaut that stands over the whole landscape of redemption. And he weaves his way into every historical event in the Bible. It is because of Abraham, Isaiah 41a, that God goes to war for Israel, verse 12. He removes all geographical barriers that Israel was afraid of, mountain ranges and uh, wandering out 
in strange places, verse 15, triumphing over all the false gods, just like in Egypt. Isaiah 41, 23. And ultimately, catch this, Isaiah 42, verse 1, ultimately, because he remembers his covenant with Abraham, he moves to deliver his people out of Assyria, out of Egypt, out of Babylon. Why? So that he would bless the nations. Does that remind you of anything? The blessing of the nations? See, God's honor is on the line. And that's why when the children of Israel disobeyed, when the children of Israel didn't take heed to what they heard, when the children of Israel thought it was something they could forget when they saw the signs, God took great offense to that because you were relinquishing, you were forfeiting the promises of redemption themselves. What about reaching the promised land? That's the last thing. The context of Hebrews is bridged for us in two ways. First, by the universal threat of apostasy. And uh, you see that in verse 19. Watch this. So, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And so the we see is very important there, right? We, this is for us now. The lesson is for us to take home of what we saw in the wilderness generation because of the universal threat of apostasy that if we disregard the promises of God, then what we're doing is we're disregarding the faithfulness of God to His, to His Word, to His oath. And ultimately, because through Jesus Christ everything is fulfilled, we have reached the climax of the whole story. And what we're saying is that the climax of the story we no longer have regard for. And that is exactly what the children of Israel are being instructed against and what Hebrews is instructing his people against and what I am instructing us against. This is why if you leave Jesus, if you walk away from Jesus, there remains no further a sacrifice of sin for you. You can't go anywhere else. You say, well, I'm going to go get spiritual and, and I'm going to become Jewish. There remains no more sacrifice of sin for you. Well, I'm just going to become spiritual like everybody else in the culture. I'll respect religion, but I will not obey Jesus. There remains no forgiveness of sin for you. Apostasy is a very dreadful thing. Think of the apostasy of Judas. We don't know a whole lot about what happened to Judas, but we are told that he was under great stress and sorrow. It says he was sorrowful, he was weeping. I think he seriously was sorry for what he did, but he was unwilling to repent of it. I think it drove him crazy. How do we know? Because he hung himself. It drove him mad. And when a person abandons the clear thinking mind of repentance, the only thing that is left is the chaos of unbelief and doubt. And so that you are no longer whole, but you become like the prodigal son wallowing in the mire. Oh, only by the grace of God will you come to your senses. 
not only because of the universal threat of apostasy, but the context of Hebrews is also bridged for us in the exhortation that follows in chapter 4. So we're going to sneak into chapter 4 right now. I know that some people that come to this church just think we're crazy for what we do. <laughs> They're like, that's it? That's the point of the sermon? You're going to take a look at chapter 4? Oh, boy. Verse, four, uh, verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, therefore, that's a big therefore. Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, which is a rhetorical uh, question, of course a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it through unbelief. That's what he means. It's by unbelief. So we fear because, as I said, the stakes are higher. Now the rest that God is talking about is purely redemptive. And Jesus talked about this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 30. It's a very close parallel because as you're going to see, in chapter 4, one of the things that the author of Hebrew does is that he connects the concept of rest in Canaan with the rest of the Sabbath that took place in the creation. And so it's rooted in the created order. And what Jesus is doing is the same thing. In a sabbatical context, Matthew chapter 11 and 12, he also talks about rest in terms of the Sabbath, but he fulfills it himself now. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you sabbaton, the Greek word rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, if you just believe, you wouldn't have to go through the bondage of an Egyptian captivity. If you just trust, you just believe, have faith, God would deliver you from the Assyrians, the Babylonian captivity that people are in, or as Paul says in Timothy, you will escape the snare of the devil to whom you have been enslaved your whole life to do his will. God will free you from that kind of bondage, freed from all sorts of sinful patterns, dysfunctional patterns, habits, addictions, perversions, all sorts of mental enslavements, uh, relational problems, marital problems. God often frees people from all of those things through the gospel. So we stand to gain a better land. That's the beauty of it all. Canaan for, now, for us now means a greater shore, a greater shore than Palestine, Jerusalem, Israel, either northern or southern kingdom, it doesn't matter. Because as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, listen, the meek, they're not going to inherit a town. <laughs> they're going to inherit the earth. They're going to inherit the new heavens and the new earth, and we are going to be co-heirs with Christ. That's our inheritance now. Isn't that wonderful? It makes you look at life as... To live is Christ and to die was gain. To die means the gates of paradise are open. And the suffering of this present evil age is over. I can't think of anything better than that when you wake up 
with a stiff neck like I did this morning. I couldn't even get out of bed. And I thought, oh, I'm so ready. <laughs> Why do I got to go through this? I'm up here. I'm, God's grace is carrying me right now, but you should have seen me this morning. I had Trish, you know, playing a chiropractor on me. It's probably just because I'm getting old. Yeah, I guess that's what happens when you start getting up there around 40, right? But just be grateful that I'm not one of those pastors that's going on 40 but going on 25, you know, that whole thing. No. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for this time in your word. Uh, thank you for your church, Lord. I am so blessed to be here, to look out into this church and to look at the beautiful faces of my brethren, and to be encouraged, Lord, by the fact that they love you, Lord. And Father, um, I pray that you would encourage us today with the fellowship of one another, that we would impart to each other some spiritual gift, that we would impart to one another some form of edification and love and service. Lord, make us more like Christ. Distinguish us, Lord. Help us to be what the wilderness generation was not. Help us to be different. Help us to be distinct from the world. And Lord, above everything else, help us to believe in your promises, to have faith in your promises, Lord, not to waver at the promise because there remains a rest for us to enter. And Lord, by the grace of God and through the blood of Jesus, we will enter that rest. In a sense, we already have if we're in Christ. Thank you, Father. We give you all glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.